All right. Good morning. I think, I think we're about ready to begin. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, I appreciate Phil for a few reasons. One was that he filled in ably for me last week and taught the class. But the second reason is that he got through a whole chapter. So he's doing what we need to be doing, and that is trying to make progress. And so I'm glad he was willing and able to teach and was able to do that for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll be today. Hopefully we can cover a decent amount of ground. Remember, in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with what issue? Does anybody remember what Paul's addressing in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of 1 Corinthians? Paul is dealing with the idea, really, of preacheritis, and they've got their different, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and Paul is attacking this idea and trying to get them to really use spiritual wisdom. And he uses this word wisdom time and time again as he says, look, I want you to focus your attention on the things that really matter, the wisdom that's found in Christ and everything that we do. And by we, he means himself, Apollo, Cephas, everything that any faithful preacher does is builds on the foundation of Jesus and not himself. And so in chapter three, especially, he's going to talk about the maturity of the church and he's going to speak about the Corinthians need to develop and to grow. Um, anybody who has children or has had children, you know, this idea of you want them to grow and mature. Sometimes they get to a point and you wonder, will they ever grow up? But eventually they do. Paul, among all preachers, could claim to be the father of the Corinthian church. He says that in chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, though you have many teachers in Christ, you have one father. He has brought them forth through the gospel. That's in verse 15 of chapter 4. Paul went to Corinth, you remember, in Acts 18, and he did the preaching there. And so he had been there for 18 months, and the preaching that he did was what helped them to what helped them to develop. God challenges us to grow as Christians, and we'll see some of what he says momentarily. Let me ask this before we start, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. What makes Christian growth difficult? God wants everybody to grow in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18 or 2 Peter 3.18 but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what Christianity is all about. Getting in Christ is important. And we spend a lot of time talking about obeying the gospel and the need to obey the gospel. And that's great. But a larger part of the New Testament is about, okay, now that you've done that, this is what a disciple does. This is the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived. The goal of the Christian life is really about maturity. And we'll see that in a few passages momentarily. But before we do that, let's just think about this for a minute. What makes Christian growth so difficult? What makes it difficult for us to grow as we should? Living in this world? Okay. Sometimes the distractions of this world make it challenging. And what we should say in response to that is this. We're not going anywhere, right? Jesus says, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So yeah, living in this world makes it hard for us to grow. But here's the reality. The only way we will grow is in this world. This is where God has put us. This is where we're going to Fight out our spiritual battle. But sometimes that's correct. It's living in this world. What else? Dying to self. And that's a big part of what Paul's saying in First Corinthians. These Corinthians are caught up in themselves. And Paul's going to say in chapter 4 and verse 16, be followers together of me. Notice the self-sacrificial way that I've lived. And then he'll say, I'm sending Timothy to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere. But this selfish mentality that it's all about me. Dying to self is a part of it. What else? Laziness. Yeah, sometimes we don't want to do the work, right? We're saved by grace through what? What did we say this morning? We're saved by grace through through faith. But then Peter says, 
Hey, given all diligence, given every effort, add to your faith, virtue and to virtue, knowledge. And it's going to take some sweat equity. That's all. Well, in Christianity, we've got to put in the effort to grow and to work. And sometimes it's a little bit of laziness. Here are a few that I wrote down. Sometimes it's our attitudes. This is just how I am. This is the way I've done things. And my attitude keeps me from growing. Or maybe it's not just our attitude, but sometimes it's our love for comfort. We like the way that we've been. Anybody in here say, I don't like change. I'm not the person that likes change. Is that anybody? I see some people nudging some, so I'll take that as a yes. We don't like change. Growth means, hey, you've got to change. Even you say, I've obeyed the gospel. This is my routine. This is how I've always been. Well, that's great. But growth requires getting out of our comfort zones. And sometimes that pushes us. Um, maybe it's comfort. That's our problem. Um, oh, here's one. Watching the growth of others. We start looking at other people and we say, I can never do what he's done that fast or what she's able to do. I can't do that. But the reality is you and I look our spiritual competition in the mirror every day. That's the only person that God wants you to be better than is yourself. You've got to be able to say, I'm doing what I'm doing because God's equipped me with certain gifts. And that's what he's going to hold me accountable for. But sometimes our growth is stunted because we look around and we say, I can never do what they're doing. Or in the reverse, I must be pretty good. I'm better than them. But the reality, God said, hey, I want you to be a better you. All right. And so sometimes we get distracted and there's a bunch of other things that we could say about that. But before we get to first Corinthians, just notice how often the New Testament brings up this idea as maturity being the goal. And I'm going to reference some of these and you can write them down. I won't turn to all of them for time's sake. But Matthew 548, Jesus says, you be perfect as what? Your heavenly father is perfect. And he uses a word that means mature. You be complete. Look at Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. And what we're going to talk about in first Corinthians involves maturity. And so I'm just showing you that this is not a Corinthian problem. It's a New Testament issue. Maturity in the church, growth in the church is the goal of God for every person that obeys the gospel. And so before we look at first Corinthians, I just want to show you how often this comes up. Paul's praying for it for churches. He's begging people to do it. He's saying, grow up. Philippians three fifteen. He says, Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal even this unto you. Look at Colossians chapter one. Just flip back one book or really forward. Go to Colossians chapter one and notice verse twenty eight. Colossians one and verse twenty eight. He says in him, that's Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature. Some translations have complete in Christ. You see, Paul says our preaching, our teaching, we warn people, we rebuke them. But ultimately, what Paul and the others wanted to do was to be able to say in the day of judgment, hey, God, we worked with these churches and look at them. They're all grown up. They're doing what they should. Look at Colossians chapter four and verse 12. Colossians four and verse 12. Epaphras is probably the man responsible for the Colossians conversion. See Colossians chapter one and verse seven. Paul says, I heard of Epaphras of your faith. But at the end, he says in chapter four and verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a Colossian. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This word teleos is the same word in Greek. I know we don't see it in the English, but all the references we looked at with mature Philippians 315, Matthew 548, Colossians 128, Colossians four and verse 12. I know the English translations fluctuate between mature, complete. They're all the same word. The goal for Christians is to be mature. So let's go back to first Corinthians chapter three and see how it's done. The way that we grow in the first place is through the diet that we intake. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way or as mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? And so... There are some people you just can't talk to them about spiritual things. Paul really wants to move on. He has a lot to say in this letter and he'll pick it up in chapter seven and verse one with the now concerning. Hey, you wrote to me about this. Here are the things I really want to address. But we can't make progress because the Corinthians are still in a state of spiritual infancy. He wants them to grow up, but they haven't. And it's because, according to Paul, they walk as individuals in the flesh. In Romans chapter eight. Paul says there are two types of people. Really, what kinds of people are there in the world? There are saved people and then there are what? Everybody lost or unsaved. So you got saved and lost. There are two types of people in the world. But also appreciate there are only two types of Christians in the world. The mature and the immature. That's what we have. And Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, there's more to be said. There's more growth to experience. I fed you with milk and not with meat because you're unable to digest it. You can't take it in. Is milk a good thing for a Christian? Yes. That's how we begin, right? In first Peter, chapter two and verse two, Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And so milk is a great place to start. It's a terrible place to end. If all we ever do is stay on the milk of the word, the elementary principles of the Bible. And sometimes we say, well, we need to preach the fundamentals. We do. But and we'll see there's a passage that really pushes us beyond that in the New Testament where God is not going to be satisfied with us just rounding the basis. That's not a place for God's people to stay. In Luke chapter five, the context is different, but the point is the same. Jesus tells his disciples they fished all night, launch out into the deep. Luke five and verse four. That's what God wants you and me to do spiritually, to launch out into the deep. But Paul is saying, hey, we can't move forward with you guys because you're still stuck on the milk of the word and he wants them to grow. How do we know if we're mature or immature in the faith? How would we know that? What are some of the markers that you would say this person's mature in Christ and this person's immature? How would we know? Experience in the word. Okay, knowledge is a part of it. Well, let's just leave it there for now. Knowledge is a part of it. But I I just want to parenthetically insert knowledge can also be misleading. We could assume we need knowledge of the Bible, but we might assume because a person knows a lot of Bible that this person is mature. But haven't you and I both known people that you say, oh, this person knows the Bible inside and out. And look at how ungodly they're behaving. Right. So knowledge is feel is right. Knowledge is what God wants us to have. In fact, the Corinthians, Paul said about them in chapter one, verses six and seven. Hey, you have all the gifts. You like no gifts. They're a church that is spiritually equipped for everything. Think about all of the gifts in the New Testament, the ability to prophesy and speak in tongues and healing. And in chapter 12, Paul will walk down through all of those. He said the Corinthians don't like any of that. They've got a lot of knowledge, but they're still not mature. Knowledge is a part of it. Bobby. Yeah. How you behave, the fruit, the evidence. Right. That's another way to think about that. The evidence of the spirit. How do you know a person's spirit filled? How do you No, a person is doing what God would want them to do. It's going to show up in how they behave. Edwin? Yeah, selfishness versus selflessness. The person who is all about themselves. Jesus was the most spiritually mature. How do you know it? Well, he's the son of God. But how many times do you read about him in the gospel accounts doing a miracle for his own benefit? 
Even the resurrection was for our justification, Romans 3, 24 and 25. Selflessness. And this is, I guess, cheating because we're right here in 1 Corinthians 3. One sign that you're spiritually immature is that you're arguing over preachers. Right? He's my favorite. I like him over him. Paul says, hey, that's a spiritually immature person. Little kids do that, right? And sometimes, if we're honest, the biggest nursery in a congregation may be not in the back somewhere, right? It's those of us that should be way graduated from that. Paul's saying, by now, you guys, come on, do better. We're just Paul and Apollos and Cephas. We're just God. We're just men. We're just servants. Don't get don't fall out with each other over up. We're just men. We're human beings. And I want to talk to you about more spiritually, spiritually deep things. But we can't because you're not prepared for it. Milk is for the babe, but meat is for the mature. They were divided over preachers. And Paul says this is not right now about our diet. We live in a world right now where dieting is pretty big, right? I did a gospel meeting last week in Texas, and when I got there, the folks I was standing with, they said, now, just tell us right now, are you gluten? Are you this? Are you that? I said, well, I just eat everything, whatever it is. I don't have any restrictions, you know. But we've gotten real serious about our physical diets, and for good reason. But what about our spiritual diet? How are we going to grow if we don't spiritually dive into the meat of the word? The Bible says study in 2 Timothy 2.15, or give every effort, or be diligent, or be in a hurry to show yourself approved unto God. All of those words mean give it everything that you have so that you can be the person that God wants you to be. This is the passage I wanted us to look at about the basics. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Paul's saying there on the milk of the word. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. And notice verse 1. And what the Hebrew writer is saying to people who are in a similar situation about their need to grow up and to mature in Christ. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on into maturity. You see that grow up. But notice what he calls the elementary principles. I'm in Hebrews six and verse one, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of instructions about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We'll do these things, God willing or if God permits baptism, repentance, the resurrection, according to the Hebrew writer. At least portions of those ideas are elementary. If you're still in Hebrews, go backwards. Go to Hebrews 5 and notice verse 11. He wants to say more about Melchizedek. He says, we have much to say and it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. For though by now many of you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good and evil. You see what Phil and Bobby mentioned show up in the book of Hebrews. He says, hey, when you know better and then you practice it, you use it over and over again. By now you should be mature. You should be teachers. But you can't. And in first Corinthians three, that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. I fed you with milk and not with strong meat because you're not able We see this with kids all the time. If you go to any child's house any time after December 25th or 26th, you're going to find out every toy they got for Christmas. Right. Children do that. They brag about their toys and who got it for them and what they have. Paul saying, Corinthians, don't be like that. Who baptized you? Well, I was baptized by this person and this person did this for me. Paul's saying, hey, that's for the spiritually immature. I want you guys to be I want you to be better than this. I want you to be the people that God would have you to be. How do we mature in Christ? We take in more of God's word. What else? What else can we do to mature in Christ, to be the people that move from the milk to the meat? Prayer. 
specifically, though, we should pray about our growth. We should pray specifically about our maturity, not just time and random prayer, but pray specifically. God, help me to grow and to mature. And maybe you could even go a step further and say, help me to grow and mature in these areas. My attitude. I haven't been a morning person in 30 years. Right. Help me to grow in this area. I need to do better. I haven't studied the Bible like I should in a very long time. Help me to grow, God, in my study of the word or maybe in the way that I respond to people that treat me wrong. Pray specifically about growth. That's what Paul was praying for a lot of churches. See Ephesians 1, 15 through 19 and Ephesians 3, 15 through 20. Paul says, I'm praying for you, Ephesians, that you might know the love of God and all of these things so that you can grow. Also learn from other mature Christians so that the person that God wants you to be. Paul says, focus on the diet so that you can mature. Next, notice the role of God in our growth. First Corinthians three, six through nine or really verse five. What then is Apollos and what is Paul servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you are God's building. Paul's point in this section is no matter how much work was done by him or by Apollos, or you could even add Priscilla and Aquila to this mix and their influence on the Corinthian church, ultimately, who deserves the credit in the church of Christ for any good that takes place? Everybody. God. Yes. All the time. How many times out of 100 is that true? It's always the case. It's not. Well, we've got the best this and we've got. No, we just have the best God, period. That's it. If we succeed, if there's anything worthwhile that the kingdom of God does, it's because God works in the kingdom. Paul says, who then is Apollos? Who is Paul? We're just servants through who you believe. It's tempting that as we work to try to take some of God's credit. But we should appreciate that ultimately it's all of God. Ephesians three and verse 20, Paul says he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or even think. So God is working in us and we're his instruments. God is using us to get the work done. But ultimately, it's God doing the work. Look at Philippians chapter one. Notice this in two places in the book of Philippians, chapter one and verse six. And then in chapter two and verse 13. Philippians one and verse six, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, God's working in us and he'll finish it in the day of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter two and verse 13. For it is God. And this is right after the famous verse about working out our own salvation in Philippians two twelve. But notice in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even though you're working out your own salvation. Hey, there's more than one person. One preacher was asked one time, how do you get so much done? It seems like you're doing far more than the rest of us. And his response was they have forgotten that there are two of us working. And he was speaking about himself and about God working in him. And Paul is saying we plant and we water. But ultimately, who gives the increase is God. Maybe Paul has in mind the famous passage from Isaiah 55 about God's word not returning to him void. And he uses this plant and water metaphors probably in the back of Paul's mind. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, that God gives forth his word and it always does something. And so this is good news for us as we think about what Paul is saying to us about God giving the increase in our successes as the people of God. We must always make sure that we are pointing in the right direction. 
we can't do this enough. You and I can't say enough in our own individual lives and in our life as a congregation at Lehman. God's doing it. Well, we know that. I understand that. But you should take the devil is always tempting us to take a little bit of God's credit. You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and really camp out in Isaiah. There is one thing that God is extremely jealous over. He will not share his glory with anybody, not even a little bit. We need to be in the constant habit in our own lives of not. Well, I did this with my kids and here was my method and my process. And I was so good and so great at this. And we did. We had a plan and all of those things are good. But Jesus meant what he said in John 15 and verse five. Without me, you can do nothing, not one thing successfully. And so if it's done right, Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, you see Paul's point? Grow into maturity. And by the way, who is, a, who is Paul and who is Apollos? We're just servants. Ultimately, all of the credit goes heavenward. It goes back to God. And we should focus on that. Why do we struggle to see what Paul is saying here? Why do we sometimes want to sneak a little glory for ourselves? Why do we struggle to say God gave the increase? It was ultimately God. Because we're human. That's right. Yeah, the flesh. There's a temptation in the flesh to take a little bit of credit. What else? P-R-I-D-E. Yeah, pride. Maybe we sometimes think if I don't toot my horn, nobody else will. Right. But God didn't say it needed to be tooted. Right. God says, hey, it's all about me. I don't nobody needs you to say anything. Maybe your mind went somewhere. Listen, just stay with the text. Right. (laughs) Anyway, the point is, it's ultimately about God. Here's a verse to sear Paul's thoughts in your minds. In 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Maybe write this in the margin. Let's look at this one passage. Psalm 115 and verse 1. If you remember this verse, I know we're in 1 Corinthians. But if you remember this verse, you'll know 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. Because this is Paul's whole thought process in these four chapters in a nutshell. Psalm 115 and verse 1. Listen to what the psalmist says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. It's not about me. God has given everybody in the world talent, but the kingdom of God is not a talent show. Every one of us is equipped to do things for God. And that's a great thing. But it's God working one and the same in everybody. And so to elevate these preachers and divide and splinter, Paul saying, please don't do this. You're breaking my heart as you do this. God wants us to be to be together. The church is described as God's building in first Corinthians three and verse nine. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul makes really three different arguments here. He uses agriculture in chapter three. He's going to use this idea of being God's building. And then he's going to say that we're God's temple. But his ultimate point is you all stick together in Christ and don't divide over us because it is God that ultimately gives the growth. Here's another question. Based on what Paul says about God's role in our growth, how should this change the way we view evangelism and our success or lack thereof? What is what do these verses say about Paul planet? He was the first one in Corinth, Acts 18. Apollos watered. He kept things going, but God gave the growth. How does this change the way we view evangelism? And how does this change the pressure we put on ourselves or how should it? Yeah, biblical evangelism is a team effort. And so maybe you invited someone or maybe you did the first study or first several studies. And then you say one day we're at worship service and they step out of the aisle and they're baptized or somebody else sits down with them. and You say, I've been working with this person my whole life. They never got anything. I said, well, you plan it. And God uses whoever he wants to water. That's part of it. What else, though, about evangelism helps us with these passages? Harold, that's right. These verses take the pressure off of us in evangelism. 
You always succeed in evangelism when you share. Success is not ultimately defined by the baptistry, though that's where we hope it'll end up. But every time we extend the invitation, we win. Every time we say to somebody, would you like to study the Bible? We've been successful because ultimately God's the one that gives the growth. All I'm responsible to do is to be a water boy, right? Just plant and just water and God will give the increase. And that individual also has to have a willing heart. We put too much pressure on ourselves when we think if we just had the right material and if we just had the right pitch, the power's in none of those things. And muscle and a shovel and back to the Bible and all of those things are great. But I'm telling you, you can use all of those things and a person still wouldn't obey. And you can use none of those things and just say, hey, what about Acts 2? And then somebody obeys. Somebody says, well, what's the trick? Paul says there is none. Paul planted Apollos water, and God gave the increase. Yeah. The way we live as Christians, right? We can be an example for other people to follow. They see the way we live, and that attracts them. Paul says, ultimately, God gives the growth. Maybe we spend so much time about the growth that we don't spend enough time on the planting and the watering. This passage says to us, you control what you can control, and you let God do the God stuff. He's been God a lot longer than we've been doing the Stuff that's our responsibility. You just plant and water. You just keep inviting that neighbor. You just keep sending that text to that family member. You just keep praying for him. And when God gets ready and when that person's heart is willing to cooperate with the grace of God, God will give the increase. You're not a failure because they haven't obeyed. It's not that you're not trying hard enough. You're not persuasive enough. And yes, we can all do better. Fix our attitudes and do the best that we can to make the gospel receivable and acceptable to other people. But Paul says, ultimately, think about Paul and how skilled he was. He says nothing about Apollo's eloquence, nothing about his education. He says God gave the increase. And that's where we should focus our attention as well. All right. Next. Oh, go ahead, Russell. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We may doubt the power of the seed. Russell's saying, do we sometimes doubt the quality of the seed? Have you ever studied with somebody or was preparing to study with someone and you were kind of intimidated? You ever say, I don't know enough. I don't think I know enough Bible. I don't think I have enough knowledge to teach this person. You ever get intimidated that maybe they'll ask you something that you don't know. Then what are you going to do? Right. Has that ever been anybody's experience? I know it's been mine. What are we going to do if we don't know all the verses? If we wait on our omniscience to do evangelism, we'll never do. When will you know all of the answers? The good news for you and for me is we know the one who does know all of the answers. All we have to do is plant and water. It's nothing wrong with saying to a person, hey, I'll get back to you on that. Hey, I don't really know anything about that, but I know this. I know that if you really believe and if you turn from sin, if you're baptized, hey, God will wash away your sins. Hey, you've been estranged from the Lord. If you come back and you're restored, God will wash away all those. I know those things. Again, it's what Russell's saying. We doubt the seed, but also our responsibility to plant and to water. That's what God wants us to do. And we should focus our attention on that. One more thing before we move on this point. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so Paul is saying that ultimately God owns the church. He planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. But whose field is it? Who does the church belong to? It belongs to God. And Paul is saying we're workers in the kingdom. We don't own the kingdom and we should view ourselves that way. Um, When you borrow someone else's car, how do you treat it? You go drag racing off the road with it? No, you say, well, this is their car. I want to bring it back, hopefully in a way better. Hey, they gave it to me on a half a tank. I want to bring it back in a better tip top shape. Hey, the church belongs to God. 
when God shows up, I don't want to be fighting in his house over servants in his house. Paul is saying, Corinthians, remember, you are God's field. You're God's building. You don't get to destroy God's house. I want you to do what's right and brag on the one that ultimately owns the house. Here's the next part. And this is the longest section. And for time's sake, maybe we won't read all of it. We'll read a good portion. Paul says, Corinthians, you are God's temple. And so the way to maturity is remember your diet. Take on the meat of the word. Remember that God ultimately gives the growth and the increase and that we are the temple of God. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's worth will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In summary, Paul is saying, verse 11 is your key verse. The foundation that Apollos and Cephas and Paul built on was on who? Who was their foundation? Jesus. And what's going to be able to determine how effective they were as evangelists based on these converts? Paul says, ultimately, that'll be disclosed in the day of judgment. Not that they're going to be held on trial for the faithfulness of their converts. But Paul's point is God's going to test our work by fire. God's going to who's the good preacher, who did the great work as the evangelist, who was effective. God's going to test everybody's work by fire. But Paul's not worried about what the Corinthians said by his skills or his ability. Ultimately, he's worried about pleasing and glorifying God. Notice verse 16. Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, in first Corinthians chapter six, he's going to talk about your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in those verses, chapter six, 17 through 20, he's speaking about the individual. But here collectively, he's saying the church is God's temple and God's spirit and appreciate how special this is. There are at least three times in the Bible when God's spirit rushes into the temple and it changes everything. Is that the first bell? Sounds like it didn't want to ring. I didn't want it to ring either. Okay, Um, so the first time is in Exodus chapter 40. Moses and company built the tabernacle. And in Exodus 40 and verse 34, the spirit of God rushes into the temple, hovers over it, and it makes that place, the tabernacle, sanctified and holy and special. For centuries, it never happens again. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Kings 8. When Solomon builds his temple, he prays to God. And you remember what happens? The spirit of God rushes into that temple that Solomon has built. And it changes that place before that. It was just brick and gold and jewels. But now it's a special place. And it never happens again. Ezekiel spends the last eight chapters of his book talking about a new temple that will be built. The people come back from captivity and Haggai and others. They built this great temple. But there is no type of a rushing of the spirit that ushers in. In fact, the rabbis say they don't believe that God approved that temple because of the absence of the spirit. But here's what we do know. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God rushed into his final temple for the final time. And what was just before Galilean preachers from Nazareth. They're changed now. They're different folks. And now the spirit resides not in the tabernacle that was Moses or the temple that was Solomon's, but in the church 
which belongs to Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, listen, guys, you be better than this. You're God's temple. You're God's building. God's spirit dwells in the church. We ought to be better than this. Don't divide and splinter and argue and fight. You're God's building. God gives the growth. And don't misrepresent them. He rounds this part of the chapter out with, since that's the first bell, he rounds this part out by saying, since you're God's temple, here are some things that you need to keep in mind. Let no one deceive himself. Verse 18. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. It is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Spiritual maturity comes when we realize that we're the temple of God. And ultimately what Paul is saying at the end is, hey, guess what? Here's the good news. You and I have as much of God's love as Paul ever had or Apollos or Peter. Jesus shed as much blood for you as he did for Peter or for John or for James or for me or anybody else. And so it doesn't make any sense. You're all in God's family. You're all a part of this temple. Every one of us has a part and a role to play. And we do no good to elevate one over another. He's saying, Corinthians, be better and do better. All right, Phil, I guess it can be done. I got through a chapter. So anyway, chapter four is where Paul speaks about stewardship. And I believe we'll run out of time before we're able to really delve into this. But now he's going to talk in this final section on preachers about what their role really is and how to look at a preacher as you should. And his whole point is there's stewards in the house. What's a steward? What is a steward? A servant. Yeah. Paul is going to say that the Corinthians need to see him and his companions as stewards and not celebrities. In the kingdom of God, when it's done right, I know our eyes play tricks on us because we tend to think that the most important person in any venue, and you could add the church to this, the most important person is the one that's up the most. But appreciate how many times Jesus was down on his knees, washing feet, serving other people, saying, hey, I'm among you guys. We don't judge greatness like the world does. We're stewards in the kingdom of God if we're God's messengers and preachers. Notice the text in verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Circle verse seven. That's an important verse. They're stewards. That's who Paul and Apollos and those are. If you ever see anybody in the kingdom of God and you say, oh, she's so talented, I could never do that. Or, oh, he's so talented. How did he do this? The question we should be asking is the one in verse seven. What does he or she have that they haven't received? And if they've received it from someone, I don't really want to be so impressed by them. I want to get behind them to the source. Where did it ultimately come from? It came from God. And whenever our praise and our adoration ends with us looking heavenward, Our eyes are always in the right direction. Paul's in this argument. He's in this discussion and he's not campaigning for himself. Hey, pick me, pick me. He's saying, no, choose him. 
Because all of us, if we're doing it right, we're on the same team. Stewards and servants in God's house and to his glory. Thanks for a good Bible class this morning for the comments and participation. And we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8 next week. I appreciate it.